Hello, the War College listeners. This is Matthew Galt here with a quick insert at the top. I just want to say that we recorded this episode on October 3rd uh, before the American withdrawal from Syria and the subsequent invasion by Turkey. Uh, the information here only deals in part with Syria and Assad, uh, and I think after Turkey's invasion, um, more relevant than ever. But you'll see what I mean. Dennis Kucinich came to the UK to give a pro-Assad speech, and he was paid $20,000 for it by the same group. So that's, a kind of, that's not like the kind of money that an ordinary uh, solidarity movement has. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. There's anti-government protests in Hong Kong, Venezuela, and Russia. The civil war in Syria rages on, and thanks to Twitter, VK, Facebook, and Facebook, anyone can share their opinion about world events. Elements of both the left and right say that any anti-government protest in one of America's rivals is actually a CIA plot, and dictators such as Bashar al-Assad are good, actually. Is this information warfare or just shit posting? Here to help us figure that out is Idris Ahmed. Ahmed is a lecturer in digital journalism at the University of Sterling and a contributing editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, Vice, and The Atlantic. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, all right, so just so we're clear up top, um, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, uh, bad guy, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that should be rather obvious because... Um, um the UN has been pretty categorical about that because uh, they they have uh, accused him of the crime of extermination, which uh, differs from genocide in only one only one respect that it's uh, it's not directed at a one specific group because uh, the regime has been pretty um, genocidal towards a host of groups and um, and in terms of the violence, we also know that the majority of um, civilian deaths in Syria have occurred at the hands of the regime, and it has also carried out this actual campaign of um, um, disappearances that, again, has been compared to, um, well, the the worst possible precedents in history, including Nazi Germany, because um, um, the disappearances range in over 100,000 and uh, people in, in prisons. And uh, Amnesty also had one report in which 13,000 uh, people executed in just one prison in in a five-year period. So um, I think there's no doubt about it that not only that the regime is um, criminal, but its campaign against civilians has been deliberate and sustained. So that's why very often the word that is used, civil war, is very misleading. It's actually a war on civilians. So um, I think there are very little doubt about um, how bad Assad has been for, for Syrians. All right, then we, why then we see this in, Amer in, in the West, particularly American 
and they're usually left-wing political figures, but not always, but usually, um, criticize the Syrian opposition and protests in Venezuela. And recently I've seen people accusing the Hong Kong protests of actually being an imperialist CIA plot. Like what What's going on here? Why is this happening? I think it's kind of a hangover from the um, time of the Cold War. There was that campist view in which um, if you accepted that the United States was engaged in imperialism, then um, anybody that was seen as opposing the United States was necessarily assumed to be somebody good or worth defending. And that view, even at that time, yielded some really um, like horrific results, people apologize for everything from Stalin's terror to uh, the um, Khmer Rouge's genocide. And so uh, it was never a, um, a position which was morally defensible. We also saw it's uh, um, after the Cold War ended. So Bosnia was one of the first instances where we saw a reemergence of uh, that kind of uh, uh, apologia, but um, I think Syria has been quite um, extraordinary as uh, the focus of this type of um, a, re- a revived campism, but uh, it has become from there, these people have suddenly uh, fanned outwards to provide the same services to any other authoritarian regime. So it started off as something ideological, but I don't think it's ideological anymore because it has emerged that this doing something like this is a, can actually be profitable. So there are certain groups and certain individuals have emerged who have now started providing the same services, going from uh, one uh, conflict zone to another, uh, doing the same thing, presenting anybody who is opposing um, any authoritarian regime as being in the um, either in the pay or in the services of the CIA because they are seen to be opposing a regime which is in the uh, U.S. government's bad books. You're talking about what I will politely term, or maybe impolitely term, grifting, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a, um, it's become, this is why I feel like it's a bit different than the Cold War era, because back then there was at least um, ideological certainty behind why there were many prominent intellectuals and um, other individuals who who are based themselves. But um, what happens now is that um, there are people who are clearly mercenary in this respect. So it's it's a it's it's a form. It's clearly grifting, and then um, it has become really profitable, and uh, then it has also got amplification. So if you are not successful in um, something like um, um, you know in a mainstream journalism career, so. You can find a pretty lucrative niche for yourself by offering your services as an apologist for these regimes, because now many of them have got their own. um, uh, They've got their television channels, they've got their online presence. And so you can have a presence um, which can sustain an otherwise, um, I would say, that um, unsustainable career, because many of these people would never survive if they ever had to encounter an actual editor. I mean, you know, we're beginning with something as simple as the quality of writing. Yeah. It's just uh, the atrocious pieces of writing, then the complete disregard for facts, and then it goes on from there. Well, let's 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 get specific and talk about one of them that I think is um, uh, kind of sheds light on how this process works. Uh, who is Max Blumenthal, and how would you describe him? Well, he's uh, he's kind of like the he was once described by one of his admirers as the son of Democratic Party royalty. 
And um, so back then, he used to be kind of a, a star in the Democratic Party kind of circles. And then things changed um, somewhere along the way. He used to be initially quite uh, um, supportive of the Arab Spring at the time when it was a popular brand. And I think that once the counter-revolution settled in, so he um, he probably realized that uh, having an um, anti-Assad position wasn't as, in fact, he actually said this. Um, one of my friends had interviewed him at the time when he was still doing some critical journalism. Um, so uh, he was interviewed by um, at the University of Denver. And so he he went on for quite some time, which had, even at that time had felt a bit um, uh, strange about his financial difficult his financial difficulties because of having spoken out against Assad. And um, so I found that a bit strange. But what happened is that then his financial difficulties a few years seem to have been resolved because he seems to be now rather doing rather well and traveling the world. And um, the only thing that changed in the meanwhile is that uh, his views took a 180 degree turn. And um, um, that one of the catalyzing events then also was the same uh, December 2015 um, meeting in Moscow, the, it was the 10th anniversary of Russia today. That's that was the same meeting where um, uh, General, um, former U.S. Secretary of State, I'm uh, forgetting this, so not uh, the National Security Advisor who got indicted. I'm, I'm trying to remember um, the name. You're Trump's thinking of Mike first. Flynn. <laughs> Mike Flynn, yeah, Mike Flynn was there, and then Joe Stein was there, and all these people were there, and they uh, Putin attended the gala afterwards, and so, so anyway, once he returned from there, so his his politics had taken a 180 degree turn, and uh, he announced it um, a, a, a few months later with uh, this series of articles attacking the white helmets, the Syrian white helmets, and which felt a very strange focus. This was when the when Aleppo was. Um, um, besieged and was under assault. So he um, he started. Um, that's where people first realized, oh, this guy has has undergone some kind of a transformation. And since then, then it kept on getting worse because he got then denounced by a whole lot of um, uh, people, including many of his former allies and um, um, many. I think it's over a hundred Palestinian writers wrote an uh, open letter denouncing the fact because he presents himself as a champion of the Palestinians, and uh, they said, that, "Well, they don't want to have anything to do with somebody who who uses the same tropes um, against Syrians that they feel that they have been subjected to, and uh, including you know, just uh, um, the demonization of." Um, something as um, innocuous as um, rescue work or providing medical aid. And uh, so um, that was kind of a, the transformation started there. And so and soon thereafter, I, I presume um, other people must have paid attention because then he started other authoritarian regime also started uh, benefiting from um, his very kind of benign take on their actions. So he appeared for a so for a kind of a rosy moonlight moonlit kind of a dinner with um, um, Daniel Ortega, and then he was in Caracas, where there's a kind of a silly video of him holding a sword that was given to him as a gift by um, um, Maduro, and Obviously, the things that he started doing were so 
crassly propagandistic that he, at the time when three million of uh, Venezuelans had been uh, displaced because of lack of food and lack of opportunities and violence. So he went around recording these videos for Russia Today, in which um, um, they appeared on Russia Today. I don't know if they were actually recorded for Russia Today, uh, but uh, where he goes around saying that uh, the the supermarkets here are so well stocked that the actual challenge that people are facing is the choices that there are just too many of them. I mean, it was just so crassly propagandistic that if you are a Venezuelan, for obvious reason, you felt really offended by uh, something like that. If you if you knew what was happening in Caracas and then you see this guy trying to whitewash the whole uh, um, the not just the incompetence but the violence of the regime because um, um, you know the targets of the um, it, it, the regime then also started targeting people like Michelle Bachelet, the former um, Chilean president who who had uh, investigated the extrajudicial extra, extra killings for the UN. So, so anyway, what happened is these people, this guy, uh, became one of the um, key figures, and he used to work for he used to work for ma- more mainstream left-wing organizations. He used his books, he used to be published by Nation Books. He used to write for The Nation and Daily Beast. And um, But what happened is that over time, he started failing um, downwards. He first, from there, he decamped to Alternate. Then Alternate fired him. Then he went to something called The Real News. Then they fired him. And then he ended up with something, well, he ended up establishing his own Thing which nobody knows how it's funded, um, and uh, they don't reveal. You know, for that matter, he still hasn't revealed who funded his trip to Moscow. But the thing is that this thing called the Gray Zone Project seems to be entirely a defense service for international authoritarian regimes. Do we have a good idea of what sort of reach they have in terms of who they're reaching and how they're impacting the public perception of these regimes? Because I've heard... I've talked to people who have said, you know, these are pretty niche people. They don't have that big of a reach. But I've seen their stuff shared on social media by friends of mine and people who I went to school with. So it does seem like they are cultivating an audience. Well, I think this is this is the problem with social media that it kind of uh, works through uh, osmosis. It kind of makes it into the mainstream. Like it's um, um, sometimes people who have scores to settle, like if you're, you know, one of the rival. Um, so what happened with somebody like him is that his his actual audience is pretty niche. If you look at many of them, um, so what they do is that um, uh, they're amplified by a lot of bot activity, because if you look at who amplifies these people, the re- retweets, every one of their um, tweets seem to be you know, there seems to have thousands of retweets, but then when you look at them, all of them are these clear bots, a lot of Twitter eggs and people with five or three followers. And um, then you rarely find anybody who's, you know, who is in any way legitimate. But what happens is that um, ultimately when something um, like that comes along, like uh, um, they had done this whole thing attacking Clarissa Ward of um, um, of CNN, accusing her of uh, um, I don't know benefiting from the services of Al Qaeda, and which these kinds of claims. Well, I mean, I'll come to that in a minute. That why that is so pernicious. But uh, but what happens is that people who have scores to settle against, let's say Clarissa Ward, so they start amplifying them. So what has happened now is that um, the reason why they end up reaching the mainstream is that. Um, you have got a convergence of different types of 
uh, worldviews. You have one, the Syrian regime and its supporters. Then you've got the people who are who have a very friendly attitude towards the Kremlin, and which includes people on the far left and also on the far right. And um, then uh, beyond that, you've got people who are um, of the sort of traditional um, Marxist persuasion who have so still retain this kind of a romanticized view of Moscow and the Kremlin that um, to them it is the internal sort of a communist regime even though it's super capitalist now and everything but but the thing is that they maintain this romanticized view and then they reject things like they, the, their favorite term for describing any Russian interference is Russia gate and so all these different types of um, um, I, I want to skeptics, but uh, they're more like the cynics. So they um, they like this type of information. Um, they like this type of information. And in the case of, um, um, I think, among Muslims, there's also the sectarian factor at work. Um, because I've seen people, I was including some people working at Al Jazeera, who, who amplify, um, even though, um, I mean, I think that's not really kind of the main tendency within Al Jazeera, but people within Al Jazeera who used to amplify somebody like uh, Blumenthal. I mean, he used to appear until very recently, you know, on on their shows. So I think that uh, there's a variety of different types of ideological formations who find this type of views serviceable. So it makes it into the mainstream, but I still think that their actual reach is very limited. And even though they get amplified fully by the Russian media. So if you go on Russia Today's website, if you just type in this guy's name, so they literally every tweet, every little video he creates. So they devote an entire article to it and they amplify it through that. And, uh, you know, he has a he's a frequent guest there. His book gets amplified by people like Chris Hedges. And um, um, there's another former CNN guy who has ended up there. A lot of these um, people who whose careers in the mainstream journalism failed. So they ended up in Russia today. And now what they do is that um, um, I, I think they they probably I wonder if they do it just because they actually find value in it or whether this comes out of some instruction. But, uh, um, you know, that's a matter of speculation, but um, they do amplify his work all the time. All right, we're going to pause here so I can record an ad break. You are listening to War College. We will be right back. All right, thank you, listeners. We are back on War College. All right, so we we talk we've been talking a lot about like America's failed journalists and kind of the left wing, but I also want to make sure that we stress that it's not just limited to the political left. Um, David Duke, you know, former uh, Grand Wizard of the KKK, an American politician, has visited Syria in support of Assad, and there are lots of far right figures that you know praise Putin. Uh, and other authoritarian figures, Duterte, especially, you know, uh, what's what's the cross pollination here? Um, what is it about these dictators that draws people in and makes them want to praise them? Well, I think that's a very kind of uh, uh, right now, that's one of the most um, dangerous phenomena that you have got these crossover. Um, actually, it's it, this is something quite interesting that uh, there's a um, there's, I think, a West Coast based American um, academic named Alexander Reed Ross. So he had uh, uh, written a very good piece looking at this overlap 
for the Southern Poverty Law Center. And um, then Max Blumenthal used his connections and uh, threatened them with lawyers to get that taken down. But the thing about it was that he, um, the whole idea at the time was showing that what is happening is that there's this convergence and um, Syria has been one of the um, kind of... Uh, a nexus for where um, they have overlapped. So you've got the far right and uh, you've got the alt right, which have a very favorable view of uh, Assad. And um, the same for, for the very same reasons, they have a very favorable view of um, Putin because they see them as the bulwarks of um, um, a kind of um, civilized in a civilizational war. And uh, Putin, in fact, is seen very overtly as a true defender of the white. Christian kind of um, you know, West. So so that's why um, they are lionized. And um, um, so the right motivation is that and the left has its own motivations, but they converge on the key actors. So the admiration for Putin and others. And then you have certainly people from um, like Richard Spencer actually used to have uh, the Syrian regime's flag on his, uh, even on his Twitter name that it was inserted between Richard and Spencer, the, the regime flag. And there are people who, the one of the oddest kind of uh, views was there's this guy called Matthew Heim, Heimbach. So he used to actually, he does a pictures of him wearing a Hezbollah flag. So it's a, you know, it's a kind of an odd conversions and, um, what, but it's based on the fact that they see these people as doing the kind of waging the kind of war on terror, the more unabashedly directed at, um, um, well, they declare everybody to be Islamist and jihadists who are standing up against the supposedly um, secular regime, which is protecting minorities. That is the narrative that um, um, has been built around um, Assad. And um, and that was kind of the, the narrative that um, the regime used and um, first to just avoid criticism and to avoid any attention, but now to court open admiration. So many of the people that they have uh, tried to court, uh, they include also some mainstream Christians that they they um, they appeal to both uh, um, church. They appeal to various churches across the U.S. and also over here. Um, and uh, some of them, they actually, there's a, um, I think, uh, I forget whether well, it's, he's from the Anglican Church or some other churches. There's this guy called Paddy Ashdown, uh, not Paddy Ashdown, it's Andrew Ashdown. So he's uh, one of the priests who, who has been a frequenter of, uh, um, he was also present there celebrating when um, Aleppo was falling. So you have had this um, um they have tried to court various formations. They have certainly courted the European far right. So the European far right, including Britain's um, um, uh, Nick Griffin, he is the head of the fascist BNP. Then you have uh, the French fascists who even recently were on visit and uh, Greek fascists. And then you have got, um, 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 I don't know if the AFD, AFD also, yeah, absolutely. And, and the German AFD has um, great admiration and they've sent delegations and they've also tried to, um, they have another reason for their, they're trying to rehabilitate Assad because um, once Syria gets declared a post-conflict situation, they can force back the refugees. So you've got this very interesting um, um sort of um, this this um, kind of almost like this sort of sort of syncretic support for for both um, from left and right and then it forms these 
interesting convergences that on Sputnik there are there's one show in which you have this former alt right guy, Breitbart guy, and then there's a supposedly leftist, and then they host these types of um, um, sometimes these far right figures and sometimes these left wing figures, and they have very uh, shared views. And then Blumenthal has written a book in which he finds nobody trustworthy enough, nobody in Western journalism, but his trusted sources then are people like Kevor Kalmasian. He's this uh, um, Syrian a regime supporter who lives in Germany and he works as a spokesperson for the anti-immigrant. He lives there as a, as a, as a refugee, but he's, uh, uh, he works for the anti-immigrant AFD. So you've got these odd figures and uh, odd kind of uh, associations that have formed around, around this conflict. I, and I just want to toss out that I don't think I, I think that there's a tendency to simplify narratives, and I think that's part of what these 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 people do. Um, and I don't want us, and I'm not saying that you are, but I just want to say this to the audience. I don't want people to think that this is just horseshoe theory, right? That you go around too far one of the other sides, you cut, you know, you go you go too far right, you come out the side, you know, the side of the left, etc. Um, I think it's more complicated and weirder. Then, then that, like you've kind of been saying that it's weirder. Uh, but I also want to circle back and drill down on something you said earlier that part of the grift and part of the game here, uh, you, you called it pernicious, is attacking the legitimate sources of journalism. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of that's been one of the um, that has it's kind of broadened out from starting with the there's a Kremlin strategy, but it also broadened out from there that um, because you want everything to become um, disputed. So manufacturing doubt is essential to all of this. So it's not like these people are coming out with a coherent counter narrative. But what they want to do is that they want their narrative to be one among many and every one of them equally either as um as dubious as their own. So what they try to do is that they try to attack mainstream journalists and try to attack mainstream sources. So if you look at, for example, this guy, um, um, Blumenthal's activity in the past few years, it has mainly involved targeting precisely the human rights groups. They have attacked here Amnesty International. He calls Ken Roth, something like the regime change, Ken or something like that. And so so it's almost like the, the Trumpian um, slurs being used against various people to try to discredit them and and journalists, people like uh, um, I had just mentioned Clarissa Ward and then institutions which are providing the the data on which people rely, everything from Syrian on the ground rescuers to organizations like the Syrian American um, Medical Society which provides um, medical, medical services over there. So all the institutions which have, which are able to provide or which are able to undermine their narrative. So they have taken a preemptive measure that they try to uh, discredit them in advance. So that later on, if you say Syrian Network for Human Rights says that here's this many civilians have been killed by the regime. Oh, but is that isn't that part of some regime change lobby? And isn't that receiving money from somebody who has a links to somebody else who was also linked to the to some NATO operation somewhere? So it's it's these kinds of things in which uh, everything is declared to be somehow shady because it has an, on five or six removes is connected to some Western government. At the same time, they see nothing embarrassing about being on the premier propaganda organization of the Russian state or going on trips um, um, to the 
to the Kremlin where um, Putin presides over matters or, or going to Syria recently to a labor conference, which was the most um, ironic one. So one week after the Syrian regime hosted the far European far right, so they organized something called a, it was described as a build as a labor conference. The only thing is that the, in Syria, you don't have independent unions. And uh, and the event itself was presided over by by Assad. So here was a not even at any remove. There were people directly appearing at an event which was organized by Assad. But on the other hand, Clarissa Ward works with CNN. CNN um, is funded by somebody else. And that person has some relative who works for NATO or something like that. And so that becomes a reason to dispute anything that CNN reports. So it's kind of a it's a way of manufacturing um, doubt on the one hand and on the other hand, trying to discredit um, through association all the potential sources of um, um, legitimate news or legitimate information. Because I think one of the things that they have contend they have had to contend with, they're confronted with all the time is that there are all these mainstream institutions where you have uh, human rights groups and um, you've got the UN's agencies and you've got all these mainstream journalists who are reporting one truth and there there's it seems to be a coherent story because all of them kind of seem to be coming to the same conclusion but because they're coming up with their counter narrative it becomes essential for them to suggest that somehow the fact that all of these people are reaching the same conclusion based on their independent investigations is itself um, evidence of some big conspiracy. I, I do have uh, my own brief little story about being labeled an Al-Qaeda supporter shortly after I got back from Rujava. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Because it, it's it's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely how they approach things. Uh, I, I had a brief interaction with, uh, with Max on Twitter that led to me being added to a list called Al-Qaeda fans. Um, <laughs> just because... Despite the fact that uh, I don't believe any of the SDF people I was with were particularly aligned with Al Qaeda or any of that sort of thing, um, certainly didn't see a lot of Al Qaeda or ISIS fans when I was in Raqqa. Well, absolutely. I think uh, um, recently, um, so I'll I'll mention my experience that recently, uh, just a couple of weeks back, I was on the BBC. They were talking about the um, situation in in Idlib, and it was kind of a brief interview and it was all about um, just describing what the reality is there and the UN's latest, latest report that I mentioned and um, then it was, there were, my university uh, came under this swarm attack that there was, uh, next thing you know you have these um, hundreds of people writing into the university complaining and, uh, and it was very kind of um, and, and the worst part of it was that um, the people who are writing in so they it was, in my case, I mean, it's very different than, you know, for you, a man called Kevin, being called Al-Qaeda supporter. You know, you can kind of uh, brush it off. But the thing that happens is that they know that it's a different thing that somebody named whose first name is Muhammad and whose, whose last name is Ahmed, that they try to tar you in these ways, that they try to create this kind of, uh, um, they deliberately weaponize Islamophobia. And uh, they try to. I mean, so the slurs are just um, extraordinary. I mean, I get uh, get called everything from jihadist. I'm a Al Qaeda supporter, and um, um, and I'm supposed to be uh, a Wahhabi, which I'm not. And people are calling for me to go back to Saudi Arabia, from where I'm not. So it's these kinds of things that you uh, they encounter. And institutions then kind of. Uh, 
I don't think that at the moment they are quite prepared for these type of activities. You know, they they haven't encountered anything like that in the past, but these days it's just so easy for um, these type of organized online mobs to um, to be activated and to target institutions. And uh, BBC's then Twitter account got flooded with all these the same um, people, and uh, the center of it is always people like these. That's who. Um, you know, they, they go with all kinds of um, um, false charges and um, all kinds of um, – um, I think one of the other things that they count on is that Twitter is a kind of medium where uh, you can get away with a lot. And um, anonymity grants people this escape from responsibility that you, you get on Twitter and you're abusing people and then you're uh, able to slander people and you can get away with it and, uh, and an individual then – doesn't have the capacity to be going after where well, here are, you know, a hundred accounts that are saying something nasty about you. How many of them are you going to go and um, many of them are not even real people? That well, How are you going to contend with that? So I think that that has created a very toxic atmosphere and um, institutions are still struggling to find out ways how they can, um, you know, deal with a situation like this. Okay. I have a question, I think, about a long-term concern that I do have about the influence of some of these media figures. Um, recently, Bellingcat revealed um, some funding that some of these people had been receiving from pro-regime organizations. And uh, Ben Norton, who's a, one of these figures who we haven't really talked about, but is closely affiliated with uh, Blumenthal, he he dismissed it by saying, I think it was to Jimmy Dore, he said, mm-hmm. look at them making a big deal out of a measly $2,500, which $2,500 yeah. actually – it's not a small amount of number. Yeah. And for those of us who have reported in places like Syria, we wish we could get funding like that. But yeah. therein lies one of the struggles. These people seem to be getting a hold of funding and they seem to have the mobility to go to these places, whereas journalists and freelancers who risk their lives to get this information are finding it increasingly difficult. Do we have a danger in which these well-funded people could eventually start subsuming the legitimate voices who can no longer gain access to these places? Well, that is kind of has been the approach. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why people like Marie Colwyn and um, you know Paul, who was with him, uh, with her when she was killed, he's a good friend of mine. And the thing is that one of the reasons why they had to take such enormous risks is that critical journalists cannot go to these places, and uh, the regime is very kind of um, um, selective in who it grants visas to, and um, and the kind of people that it grants visas to are people he, they know to expect you know, favorable reporting from. There have been very few exceptions, like uh, people who have gone on regime. It's usually people that they didn't know and um, later on, you know, did some critical work. I think there was a Vice had this extraordinary documentary by this uh, journalist, Isabel Young, and um, she was brilliant financial times at Erica Solomon. But what these people do is that they go there, they receive funding, obviously, because there are, um, there's a last time there was this kind of a gathering so it was Assad's father-in-law. He's in. Uh, he lives in the UK, and he has. He's flush with money, so he organized such a trip. And then we had the famous case of Tulsi Gabbard and um, um, uh, Denis Kucinich visiting. And uh, so they were then. Um, their trip was facilitated by the Syrian um, socialist uh, SSNP. I'm forgetting its actual kind of the um, the, the, the title. But uh, but what happens is that these. 
Fronts have then been created. Um, this one, the Serena Shame Award, was interesting because it wasn't just the 2500 that Jimmy Dole received, because all the people who have been awarded, they also receive $5,000. You know, that's the kind of uh, minimum award that they, they grant. And they also give money for other things. Like Dennis Kucinich came to the UK to give a pro asset speech, and he was paid $20,000 for it by the same group. So that's how kind of that's not like the kind of money that an ordinary uh, solidarity movement has. And they call themselves the Syrian Solidarity Movement, which is behind the, the whole thing. So that's not the kind of money that I've seen any kind of solidarity movement, uh, you know, um, handing out. So these people are flush with money and then they are able to reward people for this type of coverage. And um, so uh, it ends up in a situation where you know, writing critically doesn't bring you any benefit as, um, um, what's his name, Blumenthal himself discovered that at the time when he wrote critically. Um, so, you know, he was among so many other voices who were saying that Assad is bad. But the thing is that when you started saying the opposite, then you were a rare commodity. And then you were, you know, there were people willing to fund you. And uh, I think somebody like, uh, you know, Norton is a good example. Uh, the only <laughs> encounter I had with him was that he, many years back, he befriended me on Facebook and he was, um, um, uh, and he wanted, he said that how much he appreciated my work and everything. And then he, 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 he wrote this article about the drone war, which I had written an um, academic piece about. And, uh, you know, I gave him the leads and I gave him uh, an interview and he ended up writing this thing. And he always presented himself as this big supporter of the Syrian um, revolution. And then he also did that 180 degree turn. And so the comical thing about him is that the first thing that he did when um, he made his 180 degree turn is that uh, he went on this um, sort of um, uh, weeding operation that he, I think it was 18 articles that somebody was able to retrieve that he had deleted in which he had written critically about Assad. So he wanted to reinvent himself with a clean uh, bill of health for the uh, his new audience. So these people are, um, I think, recognizing that, okay, if you're going with a certain position, which is uncontroversial, like if you're saying that, well, Assad is bad, well, yeah, so is so are, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people saying the same thing. So you don't stand out. So if you are then coming out with this counter narrative, so suddenly you're in the, in the market because, you know, there are people willing to reward you for it because um, uh, you're you're basically um, I mean, that's kind of like the kind of a, a moral price that you are willing to pay, that you are willing to accept the the derision of people like me, probably. And then you're willing to, um, you know, trade whatever credibility you had for whatever benefit that you expect to gain from it. All right. I want to transition now to our last little line of questioning. Um, we kind of hits on some of the stuff that you've been talking about. We recently had Peter Pomerantsev on. Um, his parents were Soviet dissidents, and he talked about this in his latest book. When they got to Britain, they were exiled. Uh, Peter's mother uh, became part of the academic community in London and was told by her colleagues in London that she was biased against the Soviet Union. Um, and therefore, her opinions were invalid. Uh, what's the deal with white Westerners telling refugees and exiles that the horrible governments they're fleeing are actually good and they don't understand their own countries? 
Well, yeah, I mean, Peter is brilliant. And recently, I will give you uh, a very um, recent example of that, that um, there's, a, um, there's a Lebanese PhD student who was here at Edinburgh University. This is all public, so I'm not revealing anything to you. So it's uh, so what happened with him is that he had an encounter with a, a white professor at Edinburgh University who was very pro-Assad. So uh, he said to this professor that, OK, can you can, why don't I introduce you to some Syrians? so that they can actually tell you what they have experienced, because this professor is part of this group of British academics who are who deny that Assad commits crimes. In fact, their view is that it's really the British state behind it with um, um, white helmets who have been committing all these crimes to just tar Assad's image. I mean, that's literally the kind of views we are seeing being promoted by professors at prestigious, I mean, it's not just uh, Edinburgh University, Bristol University, and uh, previously it was Sheffield University as well. So these are um, people at the, you know, they're known as the, they are kind of like the American Ivy League. It's uh, So at these universities, they are promoting these kinds of views. But what happened, his response was quite extraordinary. He said that why would he want to talk to people who have the most biased view against Assad? So he's talking about the Syrians who have suffered most from Assad, to him, they're the most, they're the least trustworthy, precisely because their view is, has been biased by their bad experience. So it is kind of an insane um, position to hold. And yes, there's actually, a, a, there was a really great exchange back in the 80s. Um, there was this Polish pro, uh, philosopher, Leszek Kolakowski, that who had settled over here because he again had been exiled. And um, so one of the great British historians, um, uh, E.P. Thompson, he wrote him an open letter and denouncing him that why is he sitting in an imperialist country and denouncing um, um, the Eastern Bloc, which may have its flaws, but its intentions are good. That was his kind of argument. And um, Kolakowski then at the time wrote a blistering response. It's blistering because it's kind of really understated, but it's just so devastating because he completely destroys um, uh, Thompson's logic. And uh, I, I would recommend your readers to look it up online. They can find it. It's called, just called uh, the piece is called My Correct View on Everything. And um, so what Kolakowski, one of the things that he mentioned is that um, what a lot of these people do is that when it comes to a criticism of their own states, they only deploy moral categories. So they are absolute in saying that um, torture is bad and uh, or you know similar things. Collective punishment is bad. So they will take absolute uh, positions. But when it comes to um, countries with which they are ideologically allied, so then they use political categories. They say that, yeah, collective punishment may be bad, but look, there are so many al-Qaeda in there, so what option does the Syrian regime have except to bomb Aleppo? I mean, that will be the kind of thing. Or, yeah, torture is bad, but look, these people have risen up against a legitimate government, and so what other option does the government have except to use violence against, uh, you know, protesters, and some people have become, um, if civilians have died, that's you know, the unfortunate cost of um, um, maintaining order. So this is the kind of uh, argument that they come up with. So anyway, but the, the, so this is not a new phenomenon, but there's a whole history of it. And this is why I think that this needs to be um, encountered more, uh, confronted more directly and more um, often, because we do see this a lot. We do see this even sometimes making it into the mainstream um, at Boston Globe. Actually, somebody like Stephen Kinzer still has a has a column, even though 
the kind of things that he writes are appalling. They're justifying every kind of uh, atrocity in Syria and um, um, and denouncing again one of the. Um, famously, Kinzer had written this article denouncing Western media because they said that they don't do any on-the-ground reporting. And then uh, this is something I use as a um, case study in my classroom because students, uh, then they see that his own sources are one Facebook comment from somebody anonymous and a blogger from the um, Iranian regime's, um, Iranian supreme leader's personal website. So these people, uh, it's also a you know, kind of. Um, I think it's also the um, psychology of these people that they demand absolute kind of evidence of proof when it comes to accepting that Assad has committed some crime. So, you know, his chemical attacks, whatever evidence you gather, it will never measure up because they will be so um, exacting in terms of what they demand. But on the other hand, they will be quite willing to accept the, on the most dubious uh, basis the claims that will come out from the regime it began within 2000 and, uh, 2012 when there was that first big massacre. It had occurred in a place called Hula. And, I mean, you know, you, you can still look up just how many of the prominent left-wing figures in Britain and the United States, they readily accepted the, the claim. Um, it was planted by the regime. That it was the rebels who did it themselves to try to trigger, trigger a Western intervention. So I think there's a there's a long history of things like these, and um, it's an unfortunate tendency, but um, it persists. And I think that's why it needs to be confronted again and again. How do people regain control of their own history? Well, I think um, it's by demanding more from um, our Institutions need to do better. And I think that's why, you know, organizations like um, I am Bellingcat, I think, have been a godsend in that respect, because uh, they do they have brought a higher degree of um, 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 verifiability, accuracy to reportage. And I think institutions like, for example, our media institutions did do things over the previous you know, 20 years, which led to a certain degree of cynicism about them. And now, even though I feel that journalism today is much better than it was 15 years back, I mean, if you take prominent publications like New York Times of, uh, you know, the present day New York Times is so much better than the New York Times we had 15 years back. Washington Post is definitely better. So, but the thing that happens is that you have, um, like, for example, London Review of Books published on its front page this two or three conspiracy theories by Seymour Hirsch. You know, he was a big name and uh, a lot of people used to, a lot of us used to respect him. But um, once those stories were proven to be false, there has not been any kind of uh, um, any expression of regret or even an apology. And I think that that what it does is that it creates that situation where truth becomes an irrelevance, that it all becomes about the political truths, that while you feel... Um, not the epistemic truths, which are, you know, that if something is verifiable, factual, that doesn't matter. But it becomes all about whether it fits the broader narrative to which you subscribe. And I think that that's why we need to be um, – journalism will have to play a big role in that because more credible journalism is definitely going to be uh, – is going to be what, what it takes to restore that kind of a trust in these institutions. And uh, I think we are seeing some signs of that. 2016 was probably a wake-up call. And um, since then, we are seeing, you know, one people 
there's a the Guardian has increased its subscribers. You know, New York Times has increased its subscribers. So, so there's certainly there's this view, uh, there's this um, there's this realization that if you don't have good trustworthy journalism, so this is what you can end up with. We have Brexit here in the U.S. You have Trump, and then we have an international order that is facing collapse in the face of you know the, these type of regimes, which not only commit mass crimes, but they are also, the mass crimes just become matters of eternal dispute rather than become matter, becoming matters of fact. Idris, thank you so much for coming on to War College and walking us through this, this complicated um, and fascinating yet also awful topic. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to War College. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin Nodell, uh, which you got to hear a little bit in this episode, doing his producer thing. It was created by myself and Jason Fields, who is enjoying a luxurious retirement away from the podcasting world. If you like the show, please like and subscribe, rate us on iTunes, share us around the web. We are found wherever fine pods are casted. If you want to find us online, please go to our Twitter account at war underscore college. Uh, I am at MJ Galt on Twitter, and Kevin is at KJK Nodell. We will be back next week uh, with more stories from behind the front lines. Please stay safe until then.